there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Tonight on The Readout. Guys, I want to promise you this. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. Breaking news from the presidential race, Trump's most persistent critic on the campaign trail, Chris Christie, announces he is dropping out. Also tonight, Trump often claimed to have unlimited power as president. Now his pitch for absolute power and his claims of immunity from any legal consequences should be setting off alarm bells. And yet, all we're hearing from Republicans are the sounds of silence. Good evening, everyone. We begin tonight with breaking news. Just one day since the attorney for the former president of the United States argued in federal court that a president has the authority under the theory of absolute immunity to murder their political opponent. Only one Republican, one, reacted to that insane idea. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie who up to about an hour ago was running for president against Donald Trump. Christie, the only Republican to consistently and sharply criticize Trump, has dropped out of the race. And what he has had to say about Trump and about his remaining opponents is where we begin tonight. Just a short time ago in New Hampshire, Christie said he no longer saw a path to the Republican nomination. Please understand this. I have known him well for 22 years, more than anybody else in this race has known him. And I can promise you this, if you put him back behind the desk in the Oval Office and a choice comes and a decision is needed to be made as to whether he puts himself first or he puts you first, how much more evidence do you need that he will pick himself. But even before the announcement made it official, apparently Christie didn't realize that his mic was still hot when he said this, apparently speaking about Donald Trump's remaining rivals. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, she spent 68 million so far, just on TV, spent 68 million so far, 59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She hasn't even been she's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and he's, gonna, he's still going to carry Iowa, right? Yes. Oh, he's, I, t- you know, I talked to De- DeSantis called me, petrified that I would. He's probably getting out after Iowa. I mean, ouch. But also no lies detected. In the meantime, he's not endorsing any other Republicans for now, which, given everything, doesn't seem entirely surprising. Joining me now is Jen Psaki, host of Inside with Jen Psaki, and Michael Steele, 
former RNC chair and co-host of a new morning show on MSNBC called The Weekend with Michael Steele, Simone Sanders Townsend and Alicia Menendez, which premieres this Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern. And with my congratulations, Thank my you. friend. I, I normally would do ladies first, but I got to come to no. you first, my brother. He's going to be getting up really early soon. Really early. Real early. Exactly. Oh, I remember the day. I remember the time. But, yo, Chris Christie. Yeah. Let's talk. I mean, he, he has known Trump the longest out of everyone here. The hot mic thing we're going to get to in a second. Right. Talk about what he had to say about Donald Trump today in that epic. Um, what he said today is what he has been saying. And I, I, I hope people appreciate that this was not Chris Christie setting up. OK, now let us help get through the primary process. This was a general election call yeah. that he was making to the country. He wasn't talking to that Republican base in the primary. That 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 off the mic. You know, a hot mm-hmm. mic moment sort of clarifies that yeah. for you if you were confused. But the reality of it is he is now, I think, putting himself out there as someone who's going to be in this campaign without actually being in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important. Um, I'll be honest. A lot of what he said, I wish Republicans had been saying for a long, well, long where time. Where are now. the rest of them? This is the point. They're the, not there. The, Donald I, Trump's lawyer, Michael Steele. Yeah. Went into a federal courthouse and said that the president of the United States has the absolute authority to have SEAL Team 6 run a hit on their political opponent. Meaning, by his logic, Joe Biden could have a hit against Donald Trump. So and he made that. And no one said anything except Chris Christie. What is happening? So so the question to those folks is, do you think it's OK that Joe Biden could order SEAL, SEAL Team 6 to have call out a hit on on Donald Trump? What's your yes or no? Because basically Donald Trump said that, yeah, it, he, said yes. he could do it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part one there. But the question is, they're not going to answer that question. They're not really going to get to it. What's what I think is important right now is what Christie does next, how he takes this moment and turns it into potentially Something that the Democrats can work with. Mm-hmm. Look, the, the truth of it is, if I'm Joe Biden sitting there and I watch that, uh, hey, Chris, <laughs> get really, him on the phone. Really appreciate what you Republicans just said. Republicans for Biden. What you just said for the said to the country, you know, and he don't have to make any more of a move than that. In other words, connect that dot, because I think you're going to see Christie play a role in this campaign that Republicans will rue. He's Liz Cheney. He's Adam Kinzinger now. Absolutely. But look what happened to them. They were driven out of the party, right. lost their seats. They can no longer serve in elected office yeah. effectively because they're against Trump. But, you know, none of them has been able to take that next step that right. Michael Steele is talking about and say, I now endorse the incumbent because he's not a madman. Right. Can Chris Christie do that? Will he do it? Can he do it? He yes. Could. Will he do it? Uh, I don't think immediately. Not immediately. I, I think, look, Joe Biden, I worked for him for a year and a half. He, no question, he picked up <laughs> and tried to call Chris. Go- Governor Christie, exactly. whether I mean, Governor Christie, they're right. Those states, they've known each other. Right? Yes, and, and he's an old school politician. Old school and yes. Christie is in some ways as well. So no question, he called him. Did he take the call? I don't know. What I heard from the off mic, the the, the cotton mic, the you know, the, love those moments. We all do. Right? Is he still a little little bitter? feels a little bit perplexed as to why he didn't do better. He may not be ready yet, right? He had a lot to get off of his chest. He knows he can have a powerful voice. And if you read in between the lines of what he said tonight, I mean, 
he kind of criticized Joe Biden a little bit, right? But he He's eviscerated Trump. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he eviscerated Trump. He, he clearly is angry at Haley. He's going to have to get over it because there's no unicorn coming into the race. Right. So if he really wants to prevent uh, Trump from getting elected, he sh- he's going to have to. He's gonna have- let, me, let me play one more thing he said. This is him talking about his Republican rivals. And this kind of lets you in on why he's not endorsing any of them. Uh, let's listen. Donald Trump becomes the nominee of this party. The moment that it happened was when Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pence and Doug Burgum and Vivek Ramaswamy stood on that stage in Milwaukee in August. And when we were asked, would you support someone who is a convicted felon to be president of the United States, they raised their hands. Boom. Boom. Doug Bergam, we missed you. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, <laughs> Where have you been? What's important, <laughs> what's important about that moment is he then, he then lays out the bar, mm-hmm. which is if you cannot say that Donald Trump is unfit for office, then you yourself are unfit for the office. And that you put those two points together, what we just saw and that statement about the fitness of office, you understand why he did not endorse and you understand why he will not endorse. And the other thing, keep in mind, everybody else got out the race and haven't endorsed either. That's true. But he is the only one one. that has had the courage to go after Donald Trump by name. DeSantis didn't have the courage to do it. Nikki Haley, they're all sort of low-key still Trump fans while they're running. He's the only one who did it. So he is a significant player here. Um, but And the fact is that the danger he's calling out is the same danger that Joe Biden is calling that, out, that, that Esper is calling out. That's exactly true. He has a lot of company among Republicans or people who consider themselves conservative Republicans. An interesting moment in the speech, well, it, well, it was certainly not to Trumpers and it was right. more to moderate Republicans or independents. There were a few moments where he sort of exposed maybe what he was talking about on a therapist's couch over the last <laughs> couple of years, right? Yeah. Which was basically looking back back on his decision to endorse Trump. And that message was to Nikki yeah. Haley and yes. Ron DeSantis and maybe Doug Burgum. He didn't just but endorse that, him, Jim. He led yes. his transition team. Yeah. Right. He was a supporter of his. He's known him forever. He knew what this guy was, and he still was. And he's him. remedied his actions in many ways since then. But that was sort of an admission. And I heard that as a speaking to, you're going to have to live with the consequences of yes. the choices you yeah, make over the next 10 months. He was speaking to those who are, who are running for yes. the president. He was speaking to the party. Written yes. Like, he yeah. was actually speaking to that 70 percent, that 60 to 70 percent of the rest of the GOP. Right. Yeah. Particularly those in elective office. Let, let me play Mark Esper because they used to call me Yesper, right? Because he was the defense secretary who would do whatever he was told most of the time. Here he is saying what he wouldn't do. This mm-hmm. is cut two for my wonderful director. Eventually it culminated the, the, the long break, simmering break between he and myself in June of 2020 when he wanted to deploy active duty troops on the street of Washington, D.C. And, and suggested actually that we we shoot American um, uh, Americans in the streets. One more, one more cut. This is Esper saying what he thinks of Trump. Here's Esper again. I do regard him as a, a threat to democracy, democracy as we know it, our institutions, uh, our political culture, all those things that make America great um, and have defined us as, you know, the 
the oldest democracy on this planet. Jen, the, 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 the seeds of Republicans for Trump are there. Yes. There are Republicans who are willing to say that. That guy's a Republican. Yes. These are not liberals. These are not people who are liberal. These are these are conservative Republicans who worked for Trump. Yes. Does, is President Biden's campaign prepared in this moment to take full advantage of this, whether or not these people endorse him outright? When are they cutting these they ads? They don't have to endorse them. They don't have to they endorse them right now. And they may not be willing to appear in ads, but they have all sorts of channels. They talk to all sorts of people and they know how powerful Mark Esper's voice out there and a lot of these voices. And frankly, what he just said for, I, you know, I used to work in the national security world, people who are not political, who would consider themselves Republicans. That's exactly who worked in the Trump administration. Yep. Yes. That is exactly what they tell you, yes. that this is existential, that these the threats he poses to national security are historically existential. So, yes. But I will tell you, Joy, I do think they are in touch through a range of channels. It doesn't mean they have to be in ads. He may not be in an ad. I don't think he'll agree. Yeah, but what he said could be in an ad. It could be in an ad. And outside groups and super PACs can run ads with that sort of thing. It's been on TV. It can be in an ad. That's That's true. And they should and they will, I think. Well, you know, I I think the the other part of this, which is, is fascinating, again, there's that campaign piece, but then beneath the surface is what the president talked on, uh, touched on at Valley Forge. There's the democracy piece. Yeah. And that's what Esper was really, that's what really yeah. got to him was, you want me to go shoot Americans, shoot Americans. on the streets yeah. of this country? No, that's not who we are. Capturing that and taking advantage of it in a political space is going yeah. to be important. And the and, and I cannot say this enough because I cannot believe this is not the story all day, every day. Esper was secretary of defense. He said he wouldn't shoot Americans. Donald Trump's lawyer said that he should have been able to shoot Americans, yes. right. kill them dead. Yeah. And then Trump should not have had to pay with a price no for that. With, with no, no consequences. consequences. This is madness. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this isn't even about a, whether you like Democrats or Republicans no. anymore. This is madness. Right. Uh, we're not going to stop talking about this today because this is madness. And we cannot <laughs> let this stand. Jen and Michael will be back with us in a bit. But first, history has not been kind to fascist dictators and their enablers. So how do we explain, how do we explain Trump's ability to turn so many of today's Republican voters and elected officials away from democracy and towards increasingly open, outright, violent fascism? Please make it make sense. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. <laughs> okay, it should go without saying that murdering your political opponent is not something any lawyer should ever support their client doing. 
But that is essentially what Donald Trump's lawyer walked into a federal courtroom and argued yesterday, that he could order a hit on his political rival or rivals using the United States military without facing any legal accountability. With all that is going on in the world, we can easily lose sight of how truly shocking and deeply disturbing that argument is. But it is imperative that we stop for a moment and come to grips with what this man is having his lawyers say to the world, to America, and to the courts, which is that he can do whatever he wants, including assassination, and nothing should be able to stop him. It goes without saying that no person of sound mind would make this argument, which is why it has historically been the province of dictators like Vladimir Putin, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, or Adolf Hitler, and not of American presidents. Putin poisons and imprisons political opponents with zero consequences. Mussolini arrested political opponents and endorsed fascist squad violence on his path to power. Stalin led a violent political purge of his opponents that left more than a million people dead. And then there was Adolf Hitler, who before consolidating power, said anyone who stands in our way will be cut down. He went on to lead a brutal crackdown on civil rights, freedom of expression. He outlawed political opponents and had roughly 11 million Jews and others exterminated. The paths to these dictatorships have been paved with claims echoed by Donald Trump. And it is beyond astounding that his ostensibly highly educated attorney walked into a court of law and made the legal case for political violence without consequences. And outside of Chris Christie, nary a word of condemnation was uttered by the Republican Party. Honestly, the media didn't do much better. Chalking up this argument to a seemingly bold idea or a generic immunity claim. It is also notable that at no point have any of his lawyers in any of his cases encompassing 92 criminal counts argued that Trump is innocent. In fact, implied in their defenses is that he did do what he is being accused of doing, but that he had the right to do it. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former senior member of the Mueller probe, and Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion. Thank you all for being here. And you guys have been here offset. Well, I've been losing my mind about this, like literally since yesterday, Andrew, since I listened to this hearing, I, my jaw dropped. Yeah. I would just love to get your um, unfiltered reaction to it and to the brilliant questioning by these three judges. Yeah, well, particularly, I mean, all three were great. Judge, we've talked about Judge yes. Pan. Judge Pan was, was awesome. a standout. Um, I think what you're focusing on is so important, which is the normalization of crazy. If you go back to when Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and think about what you all and what I remember what I thought about it. I, I was I just couldn't believe my ears. Yeah. What person, not politician, what person says that? Right. Then add a politician running to be president of the United States. And I was thinking this is just unbelievable. And we just had an argument in the courts that had legal dressing up of essentially that argument. 
Yeah. Um, which was, I mean, there's no way it's going to win. But it was normalized in the sense that there was sort of a respectful sort of back and forth as to why it is wrong. Um, and that in some ways that's a testament to the rule of law, but it is also a testament to sort of the how much Trump gets us used to yes. the crazy. Yeah. And to your point in referencing these various leaders, sort of the banality of evil yeah. um, and just how widespread it is, whether it's lawyers, whether it's Republicans who are complicit. Obviously, not all Republicans are, but the members of they Congress. They sure are quiet. Um, exactly. And who is not sitting there saying what seems so obvious, which the president said, which is, condemning violence, period, on either side. I mean, yeah. this is not a controversial, it's not like we're having a conversation. <laughs> no. This is the conversation that you used to have in grade school about this. And now we have to have it in this format because we've lost it as one of the American norms. Um, so that's my sort of big picture. Yeah. And I think focusing on how much this has been normalized is really key. And I have to say that even for, for, for my progression, I feel that every single journalist who approached a member of Congress, you know, House or Senate, should have been asking them, do you agree that the president of the United States should be able to order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate someone? Because I remember the Jeremiah Wright moment when every Democrat was asked, do you condemn Jeremiah Wright? Do you condemn Jeremiah Wright? And this was just a pastor of the man running for president. This is actually the lawyer of the man running for president. And here's why I think it, they should be asked it. Jamie Raskin yesterday, I think, made an excellent point because they're saying that the immunity goes away only if the president is not just impeached, but convicted in the Senate. Here's Jamie Raskin explaining why that is not a way to get to justice. They're saying they have a right to engage in political assassination of their rivals. And if you can kill one person, certainly you can kill several of them. Well, let's say then they feel like they might be convicted in the Senate. Uh, but if they, could, if they could just knock off three people who were going to vote to convict him, then he'd be all right. Then they go ahead and murder them. Then he can't be convicted. Then he can't be prosecuted. Game, set, match, Tim. Game, set, match, because I think the, you know, in addition to normalizing Trump's behavior, the next step is enabling it or weaponizing it. And that's what this large coterie of advisors, politicians, enablers of various stripes have always done around him. And there's some around him who, who are along for the ride. They like being in the halo of his celebrity or power or the fact that he's center stage. There's others who should know better. And, you know, at the, the top of the show, you, you went through our famous list of 20th century dictators. And, and, and um, Andrew just mentioned, well, referred to Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil. You know, one of the Hitler... Um, Alan Bullock's Hitler biography. He talks about the moment in the early 1930s when Hitler took power. And the German industrial class uh, and, and traditional German conservatives thought that Hitler would be a useful idiot, mm -hmm. that he was somebody who could keep the labor movement down and restore order amid chaos. And he was this crazy guy. Everyone around him liked to wear uniforms and per do parades and get in, in bar brawls, but they could manage him. Yeah. And at the one point in the book where he talks about that moment, he said they were all about to learn what it meant to ride the back of a tiger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are right now with Trump is, is everyone who thought, say, the Bill Bars of the world or the Mitch McConnells of the world, who thought that that Trump could be a sort of cudgel for them to achieve either uh, legislative 
or legal goals they had for themselves and that they could control them have been proven wrong. The other idiots along for the ride who don't know better are still complicit. And now we're at a point where the argument being made is that he should be being able to do anything he wants, right. that no civic norms apply to him, that the rule of law doesn't apply to him, and, and, and that the courts themselves are, are jihadists. Yeah. And, and that they're persecuting him and he's a victim. Right. Which he recognizes, and then he plays that up for his own base, who also feel victimized. Let, let me just play, because the other thing I think is that Donald Trump takes advantage of people's light understanding of civics. He clearly does not understand what Article 2 powers are. Here he is explaining it. And I think most people don't either, and so he takes advantage. Here's Donald Trump saying he can do whatever he wants. More importantly, Article 2 allows me to do whatever I want. It's a thing called Article 2. Nobody ever mentions Article 2. It gives me all of these rights at a level that nobody has ever seen before. We don't even talk about Article 2. When the president does it, it's not illegal? I'm just saying a president under Article 2 is very strong. Read it. Do you have Article 2? Read it. I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. And Andrew, most people will never read Article 2 of the Constitution. They don't know what he's talking about, so they just assume he's right. So George Stephanopoulos was referring to that that quote came from Richard Nixon to David Frost, a journalist, um, saying, if the president does it, it's legal by definition. Mm -hmm. You know what? That's not why we had a revolution in the 18th century. Um, That was to get away from that. Um, And I think what this election is about is whether people actually care about that principle. Um, it's, it really is this divergence of uh, somebody who is being very blatant. This is not, you don't have to guess about this. Right. He is like, I am actually planning on not complying with the, the laws, the constitution. I am going to reimpose the kind of rules that we fought against when we had a revolution. Do you care? Right. Um, and that's why this really is about us. And yeah. it is about that civic lessons and the, the sort of heartbreak, I think, of the first Trump presidency was how much, at least in my case, how much I thought norms were really s- still embedded. I knew yeah. there were injustices and there were things to fight over. Right. But I thought these were things that you didn't look past. Yeah. But in the other piece of it, the very, very quickly for you, Tim, there's also the BS factor of Trump. Yes. Right. So Trump was supposed to testify. This is in his other case. He's, he's freaking out about his the money case in D.C. I mean, in New York, he's not going to testify anymore because the rules said he couldn't go and do a political speech and he couldn't yell at the at the clerk. And so he's like, no, I'm not going to. He was never going to testify. Let's just be clear. Well, and the only reason he was there was was to, to engage in political theater. Correct. Uh, you know, he doesn't know anything about how the court processes work. Yesterday, after, you know, after the hearing, he said, there's bedlam. If, 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 you know, if these courts prosecute me, there will be bedlam. Uh, he has used that word throughout his whole career anytime the system comes at him in a way he doesn't like. When Ed Koch refused to zone a piece of property Trump wanted bedlam. on the West Side, he said, there's bedlam in New York. I couldn't get zoned. He has no sense of proportion, and he's got no sense of civility or the rule of law. So he'll simply say, it's chaos because I'm not getting what I want. Yeah, And there's nothing more dangerous than an ignorant man 
who believes he has absolute power surrounded by people too weak exactly. and too cowardly to stand in his way. Andrew Weissman and Tim O'Brien, thank you both very much. And coming up, his lawyer argues that Trump could order the assassination of a political opponent and not be prosecuted, which is pretty freaking bad. But it's how his Republican rivals are apparently okay with this idea that is truly, deeply disturbing. We'll be right back. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Alas, we have reached the political assassinations are okay era in Trumpian politics, with Donald Trump's attorney making the absurd claim that Trump has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution related to his acts while in office. I asked you a yes, no, yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is my answer is qualified. Yes, there is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. There is probably no other act that defines tyranny, absolute power or fascism more than being able to order the military that you are commander in chief of to kill a political rival and not be prosecuted as long as Congress is cool with it. This is how low the modern Republican Party has sunk, because not only is this ridiculous anti-democratic claim part of Trump's defense, but the Republicans refuse to condemn or even acknowledge it. The only person to even mention the assassination comment is the only presidential opponent willing to come out swinging against Trump. The guy who dropped out of the race today, Chris Christie. He wasn't even asked about it, by the way, by the media. He brought it up himself at a rally. Makes you feel warm and fuzzy about the possibility of him becoming president again, doesn't it? That he thinks he could do that. Not only thinks he could do it, but that he could get away with it and not be subject to crime. I mean, look, who do we want to be? Beyond Christie, few Republicans addressed the assassination comment other than vague statements about presidential immunity from folks like Mitch McConnell, which is a stunning development for a party whose founder was assassinated. Back with me, Jen Psaki and Michael Steele. I mean, you can't write it, the irony of it. We were talking before you guys left in in the previous break. There is this progression that you see happen with supporters of Trump, where he does the the Access Hollywood tape. He says, I can grab one by the Mm hoo-hoo. And then Republicans start by saying, he didn't say that. Then they say, well, maybe he said it, but it was locker room talk. And then it finally gets to, he can say it, And women, I can never unsee Mm -hmm. the women, some look like grandmothers, wearing T-shirts on their bodies, saying Trump can grab me by my 
Right. Well, that is the progression. And that is part of the, the ethos of wanting to be a part of something. One. Number two, defending the thing you want to be a part of. Because if you are articulating something, a value set or principle or a set of ideas that I like, and Jen attacks attacks me or I attack you, if you're articulating, articulating that, what's my natural response? I'm going to go after her. I'm going to defend you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see more and more of that progression as we get. What used to break that progression within the rank and file were political leaders who stood up and said, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. Right. We're not doing that today, boo. Back up. Right. So when the John Birch Society tried to join join up with That's the right. GOP in the late 50s and 60s, yeah, they said, the party said, no, 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 time out. We we're don't not want doing you. that. Bob Dole at the National Convention said, if you can't ride with me, then leave because we are not doing yes. this racial thing that's, that's right. growing inside the party. And Democrats had to essentially do the same thing with the Dixiecrats. They exactly. had to say, you know what, Alabama governor, you can run for something. You can't have the nomination here. here. No, that's can, it. Right? And so th- there, there is this thing where I think people think that American exceptionalism means we can't have fascism. Right. But there are countries who we like to visit, who we think of as, as lovely Western democracies, like Italy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Let's put up a little picture of what happened very recently. This is in Roma, Italy. Look what those people are putting up. It should look like the Heil Hitler fascist sign, right? right? That happened here. But now let's go to the United States. When Donald Trump was elected, Here's what Richard Spencer, the guy who invented the term alt-right, which basically just means Klan, but in suits. Here's what he and his friends were doing at an alt-right conference in Washington, D.C., where Trump's victory was met with cheers. Let's look at it. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! And you see what people are throwing up there? What, in the look, crowd? look, I think what is lost often is this is not just about containing Trump. Trump's arrival on the scene and dominance yeah. of the Republican Party has been a little bit like, you know, that moment in where Munchkin in Munchkin land yeah. where it's like, come out, come <laughs> out, know, wherever you are. Yes. Right, it's right. like, come out, come out, wherever you are, white supremacists. They always existed in society. This has given them license to be out yeah. in public yeah. and build more supporters. And when he says I'm, I can grab anyone too hot, to use your language, or he says I can shoot anyone on a street. He he did grab someone too hot, but he he's not he hasn't literally shot someone on a street. But other people are listening to him, they're watching him, and they're saying, "Wow, he's like calling out, uh, you know, he's calling out racist language. I can do that too. Right. He's going and attacking his political rivals. I can do that too. I can use political right. violence. I can use a hammer. I can go march on the Capitol. That's." what is being created here. It's not just Trump himself. It's the movement. So here's the question for you, Jen. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you in. I'm going to let you in. How does Joe Biden fight that? Because Joe Biden does traditional politics. And it seems to me that traditional politics is not is not appropriate for the fight against pure fascism. So talk about the messaging and communications challenge for the incumbent president, who is a politician Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. traditional sense. But what he's fighting is so asymmetric. How do you even... How do you run that campaign? Well, I would say first, if you look at those, if we'd had this conversation a week and a half ago, I would have said there needs to be more of it. But the two speeches he gave last Friday and last Monday are part of that, right? That is making a very clear argument about what's at stake. I mean, some of the language and comparisons he used in that speech on Monday, 
they were pretty they were, historic yeah, in how yeah. bold they were. They were strong. Was very and strong. strong. Yeah. Now, I, I spent a day with the campaign on Tuesday because the key thing is what's happening behind the scenes, right. to your point. And how they see it is there's speeches, there's Joe Biden campaigning, but a lot of what is going to happen is going to be targeting voters. It's going to be private conversations, and whether it's online, whether it's neighbor to neighbor, things along those lines. So, yes, you're going to see campaign ads, you're going to see speeches, but a lot of this is equipping and empowering their supporters with yeah. how they should talk to the, about this to people that they need to bring along with them. You know what the challenge is, I think, Michael, What's too, that? is that traditional politics is slow at getting me the things I want. The hammer is quick. And so Biden yeah. does traditional politics and he gets a little bit of student loans and he gets some things. Right. He gets the CHIPS Act, which is great, but it's down the road before it kicks in. Whereas Trump says, I'm just going to ban Muslims. We're going to build a wall. I'm going to build a wall. It's it's and quicker. It. And so right. I think for people who are frustrated that it takes so long to get things done, it almost is like he's appealing to people's frustration and their boredom with politics. But OK, and that's absolutely right. But here's the rub. He ain't get it done either. Correct. Remember, we were doing infrastructure every week for every four week. years. Infrastructure week every on every infrastructure on every, every week week. schedule. Everyone has every schedule. Every so week. he didn't get it done either. People don't remember that. And they don't. Well, but then ask yourself why? Why don't you remember that for four years you could not get infrastructure right. done? Right. But in six months under Biden, you did. So why don't you remember? And you re- you resent that. You're mad about all of that. Right. You don't think that's real. It didn't happen. And kind of my neighbor. Well, what is that shovel in the ground over there doing? Right. Right. Why don't you see that? And yet and still you look at what Trump did and think that he did all this stuff for you. Right. When people and you say know what I the like difference the policies, is? like what? Policies? But you know what the difference is? He talked the hell out of it. Come on. Trump ain't do Jack Nothing. and just kept running his mouth about what he wasn't doing as right. if he was doing it. Yeah. Joe Biden did it and didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And that's the difference, how people perceive it. So to your point about folks not feeling that, you know, anything is getting done, it got done. Yeah. It's just you just didn't, didn't know about, about it. it. Yeah. We were talking about the filibuster for 18 months yes. while Joe Biden's team was getting all this other stuff done in the Congress. Working the deal with Mitch McConnell, working the deal with Kevin McCarthy. It's politics, it's regular politics. politics. And politics is slow. It is not this boom, boom, you, boom. And you know what? There was a there was a similar critique of Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that, look, the, both Biden and Trump gave people a stimmy. You know what the difference was? Trump put his giant, stupid-looking magic marker sure signature did. on it, and people forgot Biden did it, did it at and all. And then even Trump did it lost, too. and also people thought Biden was going to—I mean, Obama was going to lose, right. and he won. Right. Yeah. So I think the other thing that's hard right now is we're, we're seeing a lot of this through the prism of the Republican electorate. That yeah. is what we were talking about. Yes. The Republican electorate is not the in, the national electorate. That's no. right. Ooh, there are other challenges, right? Yes. They need to be energized. They need to be turning out. They need to care about what this election means for them. Yeah. That's a big challenge. Yeah. It is. But a lot of them are not tuned in quite. They're yet. not. And you know what? It's all funny and fun and games until the person he's talking about sending SEAL Team 6 to kill is you. <laughs> and it, I'm, I mean, <laughs> I'm just keeping that. it real. Yeah, Republicans have true. already said you can hit people with their car if they're protesting. DeSantis said that. They're stealing women's bodily rights. Do you think that really you're going to be protected from Trump if he can kill people? Come on, y'all. Wake up. Um, you won't be. Jen Psaki, <laughs> Michael Steele. We could do this all day, but we can't really because actually we have a limited enough time. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Still ahead. Accusations and recriminations are flying fast and furious as the U.N.'s highest legal body prepares to hear South Africa's case accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. We're back after this.
Tomorrow, the U.N.'s highest legal body, the International Court of Justice, will begin hearings in a case accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinian people during its bombardment of Gaza. The charge is being led by South Africa, which is accusing Israel of killing, injuring and displacing Palestinian civilians and denying them food, water and essential and other essentials in a way that is intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnic group. Allegations Israel categorically denies. Ahead of the trial, Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy accused South Africa of advocating for the devil and in a news briefing today called South Africa's claims absurd blood libel, saying the nation's capital city, Pretoria, is giving, quote, political and legal cover to the Hamas rapist regime. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa also addressed the issue today during, an, during a eulogy for an anti-apartheid activist, saying, as a people who once tasted the bitter fruits of dispossession, discrimination, racism, and state-sponsored violence, we are clear that we will stand on the right side of history. Joining me now is Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and former Israeli negotiator. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here what do you think is the significance of Israel's decision to aggressively defend this? Um, they are they brought in a, a sort of storied lawyer who is a Holocaust survivor. They brought him here uh, to, to defend them. Uh, and you've also seen South Africa lawyer up with just sort of an A team of lawyers from around the world, including Ireland. So they're both taking this very seriously. How serious are the consequences of this hearing of these hearings? Well, it is very serious, Joy, and despite the rather flippant and, and pathetic statement that you read out there from the Israeli spokesperson, the Israelis are nervous about this. They're rattled. In fact, I think you could say that you're already seeing a little more caution in what they're saying, not necessarily in what they're doing in Gaza, but to the extent to which you may see Israel feel it has to do certain things on the humanitarian front. I think it's because this is consequential and South Africa has probably done more already to shift what is going on in Gaza than three months of, of hand-wringing and meaningless rhetoric backed up by zero action from the US administration, including the latest visit by Blinken. South Africa actually said to the Israelis and sent a note to the Israelis saying this is our concern. The Israelis did not respond. There were efforts in the UN. There were efforts at the International Criminal Court. So now this has been the way to take this forward. There's significant international support. Key countries in Latin America came out in support today, including um, Brazil. And Israel, for the first time, I think, is having to seriously defend itself. And I would urge people, uh, if they have the time, to read this South African application to the International Court of Justice. Yeah. Because the court will be asked to adjudicate on these matters. Okay, well, do the statements that we've heard coming out of some Israeli officials, um, including Netanyahu talking about the Amalek uh, or saying that they want to make Gaza uninhabitable or saying they want to do mass expulsion and drive Palestinians out and make it unlivable, those kind of statements, do those end up playing into these hearings? Well, absolutely, because this isn't just about whether. Um, genocide is happening. There's a question here of intent and there's a question here of risk. And part of the case being put forward by South Africa is these genocidal statements from the top tier 
of Israeli leadership. You know, normally one tries to hide these crimes, but in this case, you don't need to be an investigator. You just need to go on TikTok to hear just how horrendous dripping with racism and with genocidal, at least ambition, what Israel has said. But then you also look at the material conditions on the ground, that level of destruction, of death, of devastation, the risk of starvation, the spread of disease, 85% of the population displaced, the destruction of religious buildings, courts, administrative buildings, the, the Israeli immediate decision to prevent access of food, fuel, medicine, etc. When you take all that together, the court will then have to decide, does it call on Israel to stop? Does it say it's all okay? Does it say you have to have a very serious course correction? The court could also say that it's important to maintain evidence. The one thing Israel has done is it's prevented investigators from going into Gaza. It's often prevented journalists. It's sometimes targeted journalists. So these are all things the court could look at, including whether those who have incited to genocide themselves need to be held accountable. Of course, whatever the court says will not self-implement. It's going to be up to Israel to decide how to respond, but other states to decide how they respond. Will America say, you know what, we don't give a damn what the court says? Or will the Biden administration say, we have to take this seriously? Does this shift, for instance, the willingness to provide arms to Israel to continue to conduct this action? It is uh, important uh, question, very important questions that you're asking there, Daniel Levy. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that is tonight's readout. I will be back here at 10 p.m. with the great Rachel Maddow for a special caucus countdown to discuss what is at stake ahead of Monday's Iowa caucuses. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.